everybody, welcome to another episode of King of the Ride podcast. This episode comes to you from Durango, Colorado. Now, as Laura and I drive around the country, coast to coast, and eventually once again back to the East Coast, this trip has earned the title Tour de Hazel. Now, we're of course introducing our daughter Hazel, most notably to her extended maternal family out in Laura's homeland of Seattle. But we're also introducing Hazel to friends and family we see throughout the way. It has also recently earned the title of Tour Day, super cool outdoorsy towns in which we could someday potentially live. Now, we're in no rush to leave Vermont. We absolutely love Vermont. But basically, this trip is hitting the Outside Magazine top 10 places to live. So among other stopover points throughout the way, we've hit Spearfish, South Dakota, to Whitefish, Montana, to Hood River, Oregon, to Flagstaff, Arizona, and now this particular pit stop in super cool Durango, Colorado. I have been to Durango only once in my life, and that was for a stage of the USA Pro Cycling Challenge, which is a surefire way to not actually absorb a town. You arrive to the start town, you see a hotel, you race, and then you end up at a hotel again. So upon deciding that we were going to head to this corner of the state, I reached out to my gravel frenemy, Payson McKelvin. And it wasn't until Laura pointed out this very morning how toe-to-toe Payson and I have gone over our brief time together, or against each other, I should say. So with a background in mountain biking, Payson effectively came over to gravel in a big way in 2019, and we're going to talk about that today. But specifically and chronologically, listen to this. 2019, Mid-South, Land Run. Payson first, Ted second. 2019, Dirty Kansas. Payson fifth, Ted seventh. 2019, Leadville. A very sick Payson got 12th, and a C-level, oxygen-depleted Ted got 13th. 2019, Steamboat. Ted first, Payson second. And the 2019 Pure Gravel Power Rankings, Ted first, Payson third. We've gone toe-to-toe, and it has been a blast. It's nice to have good folks out there to race against on the bike, but all the more fun to hang out and be able to have a good time together off the bike. And so from tacos to margaritas to skyscraping 12,000-foot mountain bike rides to lengthy conversations deep, deep into the evening, it was a, a blast to catch up with Payson and meet his incredible girlfriend, who we're going to talk about briefly today, Nicole Baker. As our loyal listeners will recall, this podcast is something of a follow-up on a podcast we did last year, where Payson and I both recorded a conversation with each other. So that was a back-and-forth Q&A where, where I feel like I was the recipient of most of the questions, and therefore this time around, it is me purely asking Payson what's up. It is a fun dive into his progress throughout the sport, his philosophy, his psychology, his upbringing. Basically, his current state on things. Long story short, I really enjoy this conversation, and I know you're going to dig it. So I'll wrap it up there. That is the nuts and bolts from the passenger seat of the Tour de Hazel, with Laura currently behind the wheel. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Payson McKelvin. Have you ever 
Have you ever had a false record? Have you ever recorded part of a conversation like that where I nearly missed stepped the uh, record button? Have you ever done an error error and had to go back and be like, ah, can we record that again? Um, two stories. Go. One, I was recording with Hans Ray. No way. Hans. Thank you. Yeah, I was recording with Hans Ray and he told this insane story of how he's managed to um, maintain value for a sponsor. So Hans Ray is, <clears throat> for those that don't know, one of the most le- legendary mountain bikers in history. Uh, put trials riding on the map. Um, is is an incredible legend of the sport. He's now late fifties, maybe, maybe even older, and still uh, does it full time. Travels the world, gets to ride his bike for a living, um, and he does this uh, in part because he communicates so well with his sponsors and is able to show his value so effectively. And he does this with these incredible hardcover books. Oh, wow. They look like super thick um, yearbooks almost. And he keeps meticulous records of every, you know, project he does, every impact he has on a community, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, he went into super glorious detail about all of this. And I was like, this is incredible. 25 minutes in. Yeah. Batteries die Ooh. on my recorder, yep. which there is no auto save. Like mm-hmm. the batteries die and you lose everything. Ouch. Um, so I lost all of that part. Hans does not know this. I was too embarrassed to tell him. So I said, oh, excuse me a moment. I need to change the batteries. This was an in-person interview? Yeah. Okay. At his beautiful house in uh, uh, Laguna Beach. Oh. Glorious, overlooking the ocean. Lovely. Laguna Beach? Yeah. But not Austria. I thought he lived in Austria or something. No, he moved here long ago uh, in part because of Kobe Bryant, actually. It's another wild story. Okay. Um, Listen to the podcast if uh, you'd like to hear that. Anyway, that was the first time. That was really sad. Another time, this was not a a user error, but um, I recorded two podcasts that I was really, really happy about. One was with Jeff Kabush. This was uh, last fall. One was with Jeff Kabush and one was with Richie Rude. Richie Rude being, uh, listeners of your podcast will know Jeff Kabush. Richie Rude, for those that don't know, is the multi-time world enduro series champion. Um, oh. Incredible, incredible rider. Uh, super inspiring rider. Anyway, very, very soft-spoken, shy guy, never does interviews. And we just happened to be at a Red Bull camp together um, and... We sort of, he sort of warmed up to me over the course of three days to the point where we would have short conversations. Mm-hmm. And eventually, I think it was on day four or five, I, after browbeating him all week, finally convinced him to do the podcast. Mm-hmm. And I was so excited because no one ever gets interviews with Richie Rude. Um, two podcasts I was super stoked to release. Fast forward, have all of my podcast gear in a suitcase for a quick turnaround to fly to Israel to participate in Israel Startup Nation's training camp, which is also a really weird side story. Naturally. One day I was out riding. Um, someone went into my hotel room and stole my electronics bag. Brutal. In that electronics bag, 
I had backups of these two interviews, but the backups were in the same bag. <laughs> Not brilliant. Yep. Um, so Jeff Kabush and Richie Root interviews are lost to the mists of time. Man. Did you ever put it out to like Israel Craigslist? Hey, thief of my sweet electronics. I would really like to get, I don't even care about the electronics. Just send me my files. Exactly. Didn't happen. No. Well, um, conveniently, I hit record at the start of this conversation, so we are four minutes <laughs> in. Handy. Thank goodness. I was worried about that. Uh, <laughs> speaking of timestamping, let's timestamp it. It is yeah. August 29th. The year is 2020. It's still 2020? The year of COVID. Not just that. August 29th and the year of COVID means that instead of a typical early July start of the Tour de France, the Tour de France started today. Yeah. We are in person, a rarity this day and age in COVID. Give me your three-minute or less predictions for the Tour de France 2020. Whew. Um, in predict- whatever direction you want to take that. Yeah, fair. Predicting the Tour to begin with is very, very challenging. Um, but predicting it this year is probably just about the most challenging it's ever been. You and I were listening to what's occurring earlier today. Uh, Great pod. <laughs> another top-notch cycling pod. Neither Host- we didn't realize how good it was until we listened to it today. We're Hosted like by in Sir Garrett Thomas. Is he a sir at this point? He's got. Uh, he's got to be. I think you win the tour and you get Sirdom. Yeah, Garrett Thomas and uh, Luke Rowe. Luke Rowe. Um, honestly, a couple hilarious guys. Great podcast if you want to listen to that. And uh, they were talking about how this year's tour is the most open that they can ever remember, Mm -hmm. which I kind of have to agree with. Mm -hmm. Um, Being that I'm good friends and used to be teammates with Sepp Kuss, my prediction that I'd like to make involves him and nothing specifically. I just think he's going to have great success. Great success. Um, I'd love to see him win a stage or two. Um, and honestly, the way he was riding at the Dauphiné, if uh, if the opportunity presents itself, he could be way up there in GC almost by accident, I feel. Man, um, that'd be wild. 25-year-old? 20, 25, yeah, he's so young. American phenom, Sepp Kuss, ladies and gentlemen. That said, uh, will the tour even get to the Champs-Élysées? No idea, um, but we'll be watching every morning. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, today was heinous, cool. and this is... You know, I was, we're, we're in the living room here in uh, Durango, Colorado. And I was watching out of half of my attention and being conversational with the other half of my attention. And we saw, call it 25 crashes legitimately on stage one. And I have great empathy for anybody who crashes on stage one of the Tour de France. Uh, it was. It, did you do that? Sorry, did you crash on stage one both years that you did the tour or just one? No, I crashed. And broke myself the first year, but okay. then the second year was horrific. That was that was coincidental. Be, uh, maybe let's go with ironic instead of coincidental, because we started in the UK and it was dry and nice in the UK, but then we went down to France, and at which point it started being like a deluge. And it was just boy, uh, it was horrific. But um, this goes to show just the the forgetful nature. I mean, as time passes, people will forget. So tomorrow's stage two, and everybody will have forgotten about all these crashes. By the time this podcast comes out, people will have forgotten just how horrific stage one of the Tour de France was for these poor, poor riders. Actually, I have a question. I know 
last time you and I did a podcast together, we did this back and forth question thing, and that's not not the point of this one. Correct. But I want to ask a question anyway, if that's okay. <laughs> you have um, one question for the day. Because I'm concerned about my friend, Sep. Yeah. Uh, in so if you're comparing, if you're comparing the tour versus all other big races on the world tour each year, mm-hmm. how much more aggressive, risky, nervous is the tour in comparison, or is it about comparable? Uh, exceptionally more so. I would when I first went to Europe. Um, I would describe European racing as longer, faster, harder, like to yeah. the point that it's a different sport than domestic racing. And the tour is that same longer, faster, harder. It is so same jump. Yeah. It's the same Ooh, under the microscope. That's insane. totally crazy. And you know, like I'm racing Roubaix, I'm racing Paris Nice, I'm racing yeah. Tour Flanders, like all these other high, 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 high profile races. And the tour is just this crazy league of its own. Yeah. Because any, we talked about it today. In your conversation with Travis Brown, like you have one result in the year and you're made. You have yeah. one result in the tour and your career is your made. Your career is made. That's so true. So yeah. just everything is on the line. It's crazy. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so this is about you. Thank you for <laughs> podcast number one was was ping pong between Ted and Payson, and now we're doing purely Payson. Um let's jump back. Let's go chronologically. <laughs> So what's your birthday? I'm just kidding. We're not going to go that far back. Um, but truly, like, tell me about your upbringing. All mm-hmm. I know is that you were a, a Texas boy, born and raised. Tell me about family life, academic life, athletic life. What's life like growing up in the, the McCullen home in Texas? Yeah. So I was born uh, not in a town, really. I was born in the countryside far about out. half an hour outside of Austin. Um closest town was about a 15-minute drive away called Dripping Springs. I've heard of it. Texas, mm-hmm. population 1,000 when I was born, far far more now. Um, but yeah, I grew up on 20 acres. Uh, my par- <clears throat> parents were are hardworking folks that value their outdoor time. So, so much so, I didn't actually learn this until somewhat recently in the last couple of years. Pretty cool story about my dad. Um, he was an ER doctor for almost 40 years. But interestingly, from day one, decided to work half the shifts. Um, and ER docs get paid by the shift. Mm-hmm. And so he made half the wages of a typical ER doctor, which were still enough to raise a family on, but were not the, wasn't the typical income associated with being a doctor, shall we say. But the flip side was he had a lot of time to go do first descents of rivers in a kayak in Central America or Hmm. go ride the White Rim in Moab in like 94 and come back to Central Texas and be like, hey, family, this mountain biking thing is crazy and we're all going to do it. Um, And so that's something that in hindsight is, is really an incredible decision that I am impressed and inspired by that my dad made and and really thankful for because it meant that he was able to, he and my mom were able to drive me to, you know, the Texas series races when I was a a junior racer. And um, basically they had, there were, there were other racing families that certainly had more money to support the, you know, the flashy new bike and gear and that sort of thing, but they had the time um, and, and really the, the love to, to support, um, 
both my sister and I's interest in, in living healthy outdoor lives. So really appreciate that. Um, back to home life. Uh, grew up with lots of chickens, lots of big dogs, uh, sort of a like hippie homestead situation. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad, uh, how would I put this? He's he's very well read, and he realized in his reading, his historical reading, that back in the 1800s, rainwater collecting, rainwater collection systems were very popular for Texas ranchers. And he thought, why not modernize the same sort of idea? And so he built this crazy rainwater collection system at our house that has mega water capacity amazing filtration systems um and so we grew up on like the best possible water you can imagine and he's not someone that has any business interest whatsoever but word started to make its way through the grapevine and slowly but surely people would come out and do tours of this rainwater collection system which was incredibly elaborate um and then that turned into speaking things. And then eventually he was being flown at times internationally to do presentations on rainwater collection. Holy cow. And today, rainwater collection is a very uh, popular thing and it's sort of like on par with solar in regards to something that you can do. Yeah. Uh, and it can't all be traced back to my dad, but he was kind of the one in the late 70s, early 80s that that really kind of re-pioneered it in a way, which is kind of a funny side story. It's fascinating. Yeah. And so it started as a hobby. or a, It started a, as a, a hobby, yeah. It still, still hobby. is a hobby. I yeah. mean, he, he never made a cent off of it. Yeah. He just wasn't interested in that. Sure. But, um, okay. Yeah, so anyway, I grew up in, on kind of a rural Texas hippie compound that prioritized outdoor recreation and healthy lifestyles, I guess. <laughs> so one sibling? Yeah, younger sister. Um. Mom is a stay-at-home mom? Um, at times she was. When we were young, she was. Before before that, she worked in the Texas legislature and actually played a pretty pivotal role in getting some, some laws passed that uh, actually changed things for the whole country, some, some tax stuff and that sort of thing. Um, the way she puts it, it wasn't necessarily exciting work, but it's the sort of thing that impacts almost everybody today and you know she was there when when that was happening so that sounds like government work in general exactly um then she stepped away from from work to raise lily and i and then she went back to work uh and was a school teacher and eventually became uh the head administrator of the waldorf school that lily and i went to k through 12 that interestingly enough colin strickland also went to that same school Small, small world. Small world. Uh, talk to me about Waldorf. Let's pretend I know approximately zero about <laughs> Waldorf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, summarize its ethos, its tenets. Yeah. Um, I would say holistic education at the speed and cadence that theoretically a child should be learning at. And that's to say rather than a whole bunch of standardized testing and hitting these these benchmarks starting in kindergarten that theoretically are, you know, super, super outcome oriented. Actually, let's tie this back into to sports talk because this will resonate for some people. Um, 
one major pitfall I feel of, of some athletes is being outcome oriented rather than process oriented. And if you have process goals, oftentimes the outcome takes care the outcome takes care of itself. Mm-hmm. If you're focused solely on the outcome, you kind of forget about the steps to get to the outcome. So say, Ted, your goal is to win Dirty Kansas. Mm-hmm. If you fixate for 364 days on winning Dirty Kansas, winning Dirty Kansas, um, come Dirty Kansas Day, the amount of stress is going to be kind of insane and also probably you're going to be distracted from all the process goals that you need to do to be at your best to get to Dirty Kansas to be in a position to win. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, you don't think that way. Otherwise, you wouldn't have won Dirty Kansas two times? Two times. Yeah. So you're, you're well dialed into your process goals, I would bet. Have you ever worked with a sports psychologist, by the way? No. I feel like that'd be a great benefit. And then all the more reason that I should, I feel like I don't have enough time. So then I just like obsess about everything else. But yeah. short answer, no. Yeah. But point being, it's something that I think athlete, really good athletes do naturally is be more process-based versus outcome-based. Yeah. Yeah. Tying yeah. that back to Waldorf, a lot of more traditional education systems are so outcome oriented where you got to get this certain test score with the standardized test by first grade or you get put in this you know remedial class because you have deficiencies and this that and the other and Waldorf is way more about looking at the big picture and doing so uh, in part by emphasizing really hands-on work so there's a lot of art early on there's a lot of handwork early on um, I knit my girlfriend a hat a few weeks ago, which we she thought was hilarious. That's thanks to Waldorf. Uh-huh. Um, but as an example, I didn't actually read until third grade. And if I were in a traditional classroom, I literally would have been put in probably a special ed program. Right. Um, I got an English mi- English minor in college and think that writing is one of my strengths now. So it's I really appreciate Waldorf's uh, ethos in that they are willing to kind of go with the pace of each individual child and I think that really pays off in the long run. Could you either enter could you enter Waldorf school later? Like you said, you know, the process starts mm-hmm. early. Mm-hmm. Could you enter later or leave early or are you mm-hmm. going to be penalized unless you sort of go through the whole program? It's certainly best to go through the whole program, but I don't think I mean there were there are plenty of uh kiddos that would join the class. Uh-huh. You know, as we went through the grades, and and they seemed to graduate with a lot of the benefits. Um, yeah, it, there's. It's often compared to Montessori schools, but in some ways, Montessori is almost the opposite because Montessori is all about this super super free form um, philosophy and almost letting the child decide if they want to learn and when they want to learn. Yep. And Waldorf has. Uh, a fairly specific structure year to year, um, but just very non-traditional in regards to what they emphasize, especially early on. And not to make this an artistic question, how do you suppose Waldorf has shaped you? My mom's going to love this podcast, Ted. (laughs) (laughs) Our favorite listeners. Many, many ways. Um, one thing that's paid off in regards to my career, and I know you'll be able to relate to this, is uh, interpersonal skills 
And that goes for whether you're developing a network or you're pitching an idea to a sponsor or you are doing an interview or you just want to race and there's a bunch of fans that want your attention and knowing how to interact with them and connect with them and, and look them in the eye, thank them for being interested in what you're doing, all that sort of thing. I attribute a huge amount of that to Waldorf. Hmm. They really emphasize interpersonal skills. They emphasize public speaking um, every year. Uh, every class would put on a class play. So I got really comfortable public speaking since day one. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to... And, and creative thinking. I mean, you and I are in a position where creative thinking is really... Uh, it really pays off. Um, and I am very appreciative of Waldorf for emphasizing that too. So... Uh, objective question: How big is your class at Waldorf? Uh, come senior year, uh, thirty. Okay, very small. Very small. But it, it totally varies. I mean, there's there are Waldorf schools all over the world. Right. Um, it's the largest growing non-parochial private school mm-hmm. in the world. So there are cla- there are graduating classes probably with over a hundred, and then there's graduating classes with like ten. Right. And I'm thinking of it. Uh, the the next question was, how are you getting into athletics? Like, does the school mm, have yeah, a good riveting varsity football team with 28 <laughs> kids? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Waldorf was was really good about emphasizing athletics, actually. So I I ran track and field from sixth grade through my first couple of years of high school, some cross country, played basketball seventh grade into about 10th grade. Um, and, and we were good. I mean, we won, uh, not when I was there, but our basketball team won the state championship a couple times. Wow. Uh, I was on some of the track and field relay teams that set, you know, records for size school in the state, that sort of thing. So we were, uh, Good athletically, but football was not an option <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> because yeah. of the roster size. So, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, at what point does Durango hit your radar? Durango, <laughs> what I've discovered is just mecca for yeah. mountain biking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I would say I was maybe 14 years old, 15 years old. I had this recurring knee injury playing basketball that gradually nudged me towards cycling. Um, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but Lance was winning the tours back then and uh, is an Austinite. And so that that was front of mind. Mm-hmm. And I grew up so rurally. And for those that don't know, Texas is predominantly private land. It's not like Colorado or some of the other states that have incredible public land. And so most of the mountain bike trails are on private ranches and these ranchers will invest in making mountain bike trails and then they'll charge hmm. a daily fee for you to go ride them like 10 bucks a day or something like that. You know. um, the, the closest mountain bike trail system for me was about a half hour drive away, which made getting better at mountain biking really hard. Um, but it kind of stayed in my mind because my dad was very much doing it and Lance was winning the tours and so I was just interested in the bike in general. This knee injury was kind of pushing me away from basketball. One thing led to another, and I decided I wanted to ride the bike more. Um, but I, I had great ranch roads around my area, but not great trails. 
And somehow word kind of worked its way through the grapevine to Lance, of all people, who uh, at the time had a really big ranch and uh, Nike had put, his sponsor Nike had put some really awesome trails on his ranch. Um, And he got word back to my family and me and told us the gate codes to his ranch (laughs) so that I could go, because, sorry, his ranch was pretty close to where I grew up. Yep. By far the closest trails. Yep. Um, and so long story short, I would go I would go to Lance's ranch by myself, yeah. sometimes ride from my house after school and just go train on his private trails, which is hilarious. Um, so that helped mm, kind of solidify mountain biking as an interest. Um, I also had incredible support uh, from a local bike shop, bicycle sports shop. Um, and kind of one thing led to the other. I started subscribing to, you know, the, the there was no social media then. So I was subscribing to the magazines, mountain bike magazines, and I started reading about all of these pros. Uh, Todd Wells was winning everything then. And mm-hmm. I remember tearing out a poster from one of the magazines and hung it on my wall. Um, I won a local race at one point that was sponsored by Specialized and Specialized had had Ned Overend sign a jersey. So I all of a sudden knew who Ned Overin was because I'd won this signed jersey. And slowly but surely, it just seemed like every single top pro, mountain bike-wise, lived in this little town in Durango, Colorado. And so finally, uh, at about 16, um, I had started racing more nationally a little bit on the junior scene. And nationals that year had been at, uh, at elevation, high elevation. And so my dad... I think my mom was on that trip too. Uh, came here to Durango for a couple of weeks um, to acclimate. <laughs> and I remember seeing some of the local pros cruising around town. And the thing that really struck me is it seemed like every single car that I saw had a bike rack or bikes on the roof or bikes on the back. And that was not something I was used to growing up in Central Texas. And uh, it just seemed like, obviously, the terrain was insane, the trails, the mountains, all that sort of thing. And so, was the altitude a kick to the teeth? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was part of the reason you came so early, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I gutted my way to a podium that year, but it was pretty humbling because um, I was not close to, yeah. to the. I, I, Howard won that year. Howard Grouts won that year. Yeah. I think he beat me by like 15 minutes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was just like, God, these these mountain kids seem like they're from a different planet. Yeah. Um, but I knew that if I wanted to be at that level, I had to move to the mountains. And so um, I ended up coming to college here. And then Howard become, became my best friend and roommate. <laughs> small, small world. So yeah. you were part of the, the, the Devo program you were talking about earlier today is this enormous uh, development program here in Durango. Yeah. And did you catch the tail end of that prior to going to college? No, or once so you got into college. at the time they had this program that was a, a U23 team. Uh, Rocky Mountain Chocolate Factory was the title sponsor and Devo. So ironic. I mean, like chocolate? I yeah, never we were the most popular team. Out. Most popular team at the races. Yeah. Um, they always gave us samples to hand out. But uh, yeah, so basically at the time Durango Devo had this elite None of us were paid, but it was, you know, we had a mechanic at all the races, good support, great mm-hmm. sponsors. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ned was behind that team big time. Oh, um, Chris Weary, who we were talking about earlier mm-hmm. today, he was behind that team. So uh, I got the chance to ride on that team the first two years that I lived here. Howard was on that team. Sepp Koos was on that team. 
Um, who else? Sarah Sturm was on that team. Steven Davis. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple other people who aren't racing anymore, like Tad Elliott, Teal Stetson Lee. Anyway. Um, so this is all Durango, right? I mean, like Colorado is this, this powerhouse for cycling. Mm. And so much of that takes place on the, the front range, which is may as well be a different state where we are geographically. Yeah. Because it's so far away. So this is literally all just greater Durango. Yeah. Town of 18,000. Sheesh. <laughs> what is in the water here? Yeah. And Uranium. I mean, Durango Devo as a whole has 700 kids enrolled, 600 kids. That's bananas. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I mean, and then the kids that have come out of it are, you know, Quinn Simmons came out of that program. Um, all the names I just mentioned on Sweet Elite. Yeah. Uh, yeah, pretty Sweet Elite. What pretty wild. Name? Yeah. Sweet Elite. So you go to Fort Lewis College. Yeah. You graduate with a degree in? Exercise science, minor in English. In hindsight, wish I'd switch those two, but... Interesting. You know. A lot of labs. You do a lot of like biology labs. Yeah. Yeah. Garbage man. Yeah. I have so much uh, uh, appreciation for folks like you. My freshman year roommate is now an ER doctor in Denver. Hi, Brent. Um, <laughs> and I thought I wanted to, to be pre-med until I saw how many labs that he was going to yeah. all day, every day. And I was like, gosh. Yeah, go it was pretty funny. It was pretty funny talking to, uh, talking to Fort Lewis professors because... So many of them were used to high-level cyclists coming through, and you just say, "Hey, I'm going to the World Cup in Mont Saint Anne. I'm going to miss this test." And they're like, "Oh, sweet, good luck!" <laughs> and, but there'd always be that one professor that's like, "No, yeah." And then you'd have to get all of the other professors to talk to that one professor. And anyway, uh, I played that game. I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. Uh, how about talk about your graduation to segue to Protom as it as it stands in mountain biking i mean how do you segue collegiate yeah. life academics to racing professional mountain biking because i know it on the roadside i have no idea how it takes place on the mountain bike side this is a long story um but i'll try to make it shorter um the truth is the the pipeline to professional mountain biking is way way more obscure than on the road and it's getting more obscure on the road because the domestic road scene is really suffering right now but on the mountain bike side um it's like like pro level road racing. It is so uh, European dominated that to be truly successful at, in XC, like Olympic cross country, World Cup type stuff, um, you have to be in Europe. And unlike road racing, unless you're you know knocking down top fifteen, top twenty results. No one really cares from a sponsor standpoint. It's yeah. it's a tough thing because it's not like road racing where you can be a very well paid professional and your job is to sit on the front for the first hundred k's of of a race. Um, in mountain biking, it's sort of like every single person is a GC rider, mm-hmm. but when there's two hundred people on the start line, like no one really cares who finished twentieth on GC. Um, and so it's it's a it's a way more. Um, Sorry, cutthroat. Yeah, cutthroat. And and I I raced plenty of World Cups in in my junior and U twenty three years, and um, I was starting to get a little bit jaded with the style of racing, um, and also the the rat race of flying, say, all the way to Italy and 
you ride these little four kilometer laps and you stay in some Italian villa and, or sorry, Italian villa, Italian like chateau thingamajigger uh, by the course and you don't see anything else. And if you like go for an adventure ride, God forbid, three days before the race, you know, the USAC director yells at you. Yeah. Um, so I never saw Italy <laughs> and then I fly home uh-huh. um, and you're just riding, you know, you start 12th row because in the U.S. we have very few events to chase UCI points. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're just fighting for your life to not get lapped. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you fly home. <laughs> That's called living the dream. <laughs> Having your dreams crushed yeah. every day and then you're trying to do this for a job. Yep. Yeah, and I have so much respect for people that are still on that grind trying to make that dream work. But the truth was I was just getting really frustrated with not seeing the rest of where I was. Um, And that started to kind of bleed over into my relationship with racing here in the States too. So much so that there was a a day where I was flying to the Sea Otter Classic and we were flying over the Grand Canyon and it just looked insane from, you know, 30,000 feet up. And I was like, man, it's crazy that I've never seen the Grand Canyon. And it's, you know, if I drove, I would, to Sea Otter, I would drive right by the Grand Canyon. Um, and around that time, van life was really getting popular, especially on Instagram. And so uh-huh. I was like, huh, okay, let's think about this. And I started thinking about how there are these really funny traditions within our sport where if you, you know, we, we, when you're part of a close-knit group of people or society, you just sort of start taking on the traditions and traits of the way everything else is done. And I think oftentimes we don't think about why those traditions were born. And so there was long since this, uh, in the back of my mind, I always felt like if I drove to an event, it was, you were on a budget team. Like if, you, if you're a well-funded team, you fly to the event, stay in a nice hotel, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, why is that? That's stupid. I'll just work in two extra days. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go look at the Grand Canyon, see sweet stuff on my way get to the race, be happier, not have walked through four airports, mm-hmm. and literally nothing will have changed in regards to my performance. And in fact, I'll be seeing a bunch of really cool stuff between the races. You mentioned Travis Brown earlier, and one of the things he told me early on, he's been a mentor for a while, was the things he remembers most from his days traveling the circuit and being a pro um, are all the things between the races, like what you see between the races, the experiences you have between the races. Um, and I really took that with me. It's a long story short. I invested in building out a van. And to this day, um, by of my own accord, want to drive to half the events so that I can have really cool experiences between the races. Mm-hmm. So that sort of developed into interests in events that were not traditional cross-country um, if you're racing traditional cross country, kind of the pinnacle is you're working towards the Olympics. And there's this funny, again, social norms are, are kind of a funny thing, especially in bike racing. And it's long been, in my mind, a social norm that if you're not working towards that Olympic dream, um, you're not really a, a true professional in a way. Um, but that Olympic dream for, for mountain biking is so, so slim. I mean, we get one, maybe two athletes per year and the economics of it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. On the road, it makes way more sense because you have 
so many other events that are that are bigger than the Olympics. On the mountain bike side, the Olympics are the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. But we started to have this rise of big participation events like the Leadville 100, gravel started blowing up, the Epic Ride Series started getting really big. And all of a sudden we were presented with this really cool opportunity of races that were in beautiful places, in cool towns, not on some ski hill, um, places you wanted to be, places you wanted to explore. And they were one big loop and you actually got to ride your bike through the backcountry, see a bunch of really cool, challenging trail. And it wasn't these little man-made courses that weren't really inspiring me anymore. So the timing was just really good. And so senior year of college, I'm gradually working my way back to your actual question. I like it. Senior year of college, um, I got an invite to go do this race in Mongolia, just kind of out of the blue, six-day stage race across Mongolia. As a college student? Uh, Senior in college, yeah. Gosh. Because I was still, I was racing at a professional level. I was, you know, making maybe like $15,000 a year. Like not something you'd want to live on, but what many people would call being a professional cyclist. big professional domestic cyclist salary that is below the poverty line <laughs> exactly um but but yeah. anyway i was looking down the barrel of like i guess i'm a pro cyclist but also i'm definitely gonna have to get a part-time job if yeah. i keep at yeah. this rate um and so long story short i went to this race in mongolia uh one it was an incredible adventure that's a whole other long story and sponsors ate it up um mm-hmm. it I got an interview in Outside Magazine. It was the biggest press I'd gotten pretty much ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing led to the other, and I started realizing the the real potential of these non-World Cup races. And I realized that actually there was this really incredible trajectory to have an awesome career and really fulfilling experiences that were not World Cup and Olympic-focused. Um, and so that senior year is when I figured it out and you know, without an extra semester to spare, basically it all just fell into place. But it was a lot of timing, um, kind of keeping my head up a little bit, paying attention. And um, luckily it, it worked out, but it was sort of a tight transition. Yeah, <laughs> man, that is very cool. Believe wow. it or not, that was the short version. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll be podcast 3.0 mm. where we <laughs> go deeper into that. So... I had to Google this because I had the quote wrong, but your cycling gravel tactic was or is, quote, be bored as long as you can, (laughs) end quote. And then let me finish the rest of the sentence. And then you start bike racing. Yeah. You, You have this background in mountain bike racing, which is, as you just alluded to, super darn acute. Like you pay attention from the time that the the gun goes off because like any error is going to cost you tremendously. And then there's something like gravel, which is a super long, slow grind, a long, fast grind, but I mean, (laughs) antithetical in there in the way races unfold. Um, Given that from the time you're like 14 years old until call it, I don't know, 23, 24, 25, somewhere in there, you're, you're laser focused on mountain biking and then gravel suddenly booms. Like, are you, where does your heart lie? What makes you super happy right now? Is it gravel? Is it uh, the Epic Series? Is it a long solo uh, soul ride? Like, yeah. what, what, what lights a fire under your butt these days? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not too discerning in that regard, honestly. I mean, 
on the opposite end of the spectrum at the Epic Ride Series, we have these fat tire crits that are literally 20-minute, 100% pavement criteriums. Mm-hmm. On paper, like the sketchiest possible thing. Racing a crit on mountain bikes. Like right, it's, so it's what? Is the bike you're going to race the rest of the weekend? Yeah. You can do it on like a slicks. slicks. Okay. Yeah. It's 20 minutes plus three laps. For anyone that's raced a crit, just imagine cutting off the first 40 minutes of the crit. Yeah. Um, it's nuts. Those are <laughs> awesome. I love those. So much fun. Yeah. On the other end of the spectrum, I love Kanza. Um, yeah. I love you know, that white rim project we did or, uh, yeah, going for a, a long solo, you know, high country mountain bike ride, whether it's a sanctioned race or not. Um, I just really love bike racing. And, and one thing that I appreciate about bike racing is that it's, it's so broad. Um, there really is a a type for everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, and so this boom of gravel has really been, uh, refreshing in a way not that i was feeling complacent about mountain biking but it's just one more thing to look forward to and enjoy and um i'm someone that really enjoys the tactics of racing and gravel racing um gives me more of that than mountain biking does and truth is i mean funny thing about gravel is like some gravel events look a lot more similar to mountain bike events uh in some i'm thinking of like a grinduro for example or mm-hmm. Some of the other, they're they're really burly. Uh, you know, some people literally ride mountain bikes for them. And then on the other end of the spectrum, or for mountain biking, we have events like Leadville that are almost a gravel race. And so, I think of more less of a you know categorization and more of just a spectrum of racing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I just love it all for sure. Cycling is fluid. Yeah, uh, gravel cycling is fluid. The entire sport of cycling is fluid. Um, so you hit on it a second ago. You love the tactics of bike racing. Yeah. Team tactics and gravel <laughs> racing. Yeah, your nay. I think, again, that's a spectrum. Um, it would be... Well, we were sort of talking about this the other night. I think to an extent, gravel courses often are selective enough that they make teams irrelevant in a way to an extent depending i mean for example kanza last year uh in that lead group we had two guys from ef which is 100 percent of the ef team uh sorry taylor but let's be honest taylor was not there to race (laughs) so call it 100 percent of the team yeah and uh i didn't think that that negatively impacted the race whatsoever Two awesome guys, Alex and Lachlan, mm-hmm. would never want to quote unquote harm gravel. Mm-hmm. If Yumbo Visma showed up tomorrow with nine guys, that would be a little tough to stomach. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I doubt most of them could make it through the first selective <laughs> sector. Who knows? Mm-hmm. That said, I mean, I think it's pretty well known that uh, Back in March, first and only race of the year at Mid South, I had a teammate who's a very uh, strong, uh, experienced road racer, and his presence helped a lot. Not in the in the traditional teammate sense because that race was so insane that there really was no drafting effect, but having that psychological soothing component of a teammate <laughs> there, and yeah. also just his experience, really. 
um, played a major role. And, and one of the biggest things he did was uh, basically what happened in that race is at about mile 20, I got a stick in my spokes right as Peter Stetna was making a pretty significant move. Huh. And uh, I got dropped off uh, by over a minute. I lost over a minute. And my teammate, Dennis, happened to get dropped off the back of that lead group a little while later. And so basically I was in this third group, he was in the second group, and then there was a lead group. And I just happened to see him maybe 30 seconds up. So I absolutely emptied the tank, got back to his group, and then for all intents and purposes started panic chasing to try to get back to Pete, Colin, rest yeah. of the leaders. And Dennis was like, slow down. Yeah. Don't panic chase. Spoken don't, like a true duchy. Don't... uh don't do this in 20 minutes. We will do this over an hour. I was like, yeah. well, fuck, why? Like, we have to chase for an hour? And he's like, trust me. Mm-hmm. Um, and sure enough, that was the way to do it. And we made it made it back to that that group. And that sort of road captain um, experience really won the day. So I, I don't know. Like, I, if I am going to speak against teams, that's in a way going to be perceived as hypocritical. Um that said, like I, like I said at the beginning of this, I think it's a little bit of a spectrum. I feel that having two or three riders on the same team is is fine, especially with how selective the courses tend to be. If nine World Tour guys show up, that's a bit of a different vibe. Which enters the difficult nature of sanctioning gravel mm. because there are teams of seven, eight, nine, ten who do show up. And they are elite gravel teams, and they might be amateur gravel teams, maybe pro gravel teams, what have you. <clears throat> You're right. It's a different story when EF brings two riders versus EF brings a team of nine. Like they bring in, any world tour team brings a team of nine, they're going to win the bike race. Like we can laugh all day about the bike handling skills of a world tour team. Like right. You can get through a gravel race. Right, right, right. So, I mean, yeah, there's no real question that I'm delivering here. It's so. Uh, I think it's the attitude that's brought too. Like if sure. you're, if nine guys show up with aero bars and disc wheels and skin suits, um, that's a bit of a tough look. Uh, when Lachlan and House show up and we're at mile one twenty and they want to know about every detail of the white rim, that's <laughs> that's badass. Right, like seriously, right. I was like, guys, can you please stop talking? Yeah. I'm starting to suffer. And they just wanted to hang out and visit. Right, and it was awesome. Um, so, I mean, hats off to those guys for being quote unquote world, well, not quote unquote, they are world tour, but not necessarily bringing that sort of attitude to the down to earth gravel scene. Agreed. Those are two very good ambassadors for the world tour coming to gravel. Yeah. Uh, we talked about it yesterday. Uh, the UCI is, is not just interested in coming to gravel, but. Uh, they basically put their their stake in the ground, saying we're going to have a gravel world championship. Isn't that just Strada Bianchi? Like, yeah, have your have your UCI gravel race. Yeah, Kanza is gravel worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, Strada Bianchi is world tour gravel. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's whatever. bonkers. I mean, yeah, it it it's so hard to as gravel is is becoming popular. No different than mountain biking many, many years ago. And the parallels are made all the time. The popularity of something inevitably begets negativity. Yep. And rules and litigiousness and 
seriousness and sort of ultimately all these things, especially like seriousness, points, accumulation, who's going to win the jersey, who's, I mean, all these things that are antithetical to what gravel is, which yep. is, I mean, you and I bring a great deal of competitivity to gravel, but we also love it. We love the community. We love the race promoters. We love this, all these things that make this community so strong. I mean, I, it's something that struck me recently is gravel is the, in my lifetime, the only thing that I've seen in the sport of cycling that could bring cycling to the masses. It's mm-hmm. people who are getting into cycling who would never do a mountain bike race. They'd never do a Grand Fondo. They're never going to do a crit. Yeah, but they're gonna ride a bike, and that's freaking cool. Super accessible. Yeah, and to have heroes that are doing the exact same event you are. I mean, that's that's a beautiful, beautiful setup. Accurate. If you, if you want to do it professionally, is, is, yeah. my, is my point. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. So normally, twenty twenty would have been this booming year of gravel. I mean, if if we look back pre March, we were expecting like the biggest thing to be going on in the world of cycling is gravel. Mm-hmm. And then COVID happens. Uh, the unfortunate nature of what, what happened with Jim Cummins happens. Mm-hmm. Um, the race formerly known as Dirty Kanza has a naming inflammatory issue. So my first question is, do you think that in 2021 we will see traditional gravel racing? Uh, in regards, like in light of COVID? In light of everything that's gone on, I mean, like, what month are we in? We're in August. Uh, six months ago, we would have thought that this was the booming year of gravel. And right. then there's, there's been so much of this, uh, in our minds delay, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, okay, three months from now, everything's going to be back to normal. Okay, there's yeah. a few events in the fall, they're going to be back to normal. Yeah. And it's like, oh, cripes, like, things aren't going to go back to normal, seemingly. Do you think with the, the passing of a calendar year, 2021 will be back to normal? Or do you think, do you think that we're entering a whole new norm? Um, I think depend, I think a lot hinges on a vaccine. Um, Very good point. I know that sounds like weirdly pragmatic, but um, th- there's so much momentum behind gravel still i mean there there's gravel races being held now like i i put up this post the, this was hilarious <clears throat> i put up this post not a couple days ago basically saying i'm drawing a line in the sand i don't feel good about racing i don't feel good about traveling to race mm-hmm. in 2020 mm-hmm. for the obvious reasons mm-hmm. and comments blew up with race recommendations that I should go do around the country. And I was like, guys, did you read the freaking caption here? No way. Yeah, the come do our race in Kansas, come do our race in California. Point is, there are a lot of races still happening despite it all. Did you get any uh, uh, affirmation? Like, Oh yeah, lots. Good idea, don't do that? Totally. Okay. It was majority that. Yep. Majority that. But point being, despite the challenges, I think um, should a vaccine come in a timely fashion, um, gravel will quote unquote be back to normal. I mean, cause look at the wait list for something like Kansas, for example. Right. There are so many people that want to go race Kansas. Yep. Um, say worst case scenario, half of them decide they don't feel safe. Mm-hmm. There are yeah. the other half are going to be there in a heartbeat. Valid question. So yeah, I suppose it's less so putting words in your mouth. It's less so what, what the calendar year says more. So what is the, are we pre or post COVID vaccine? I think so. 
Because uh, I mean, with something this big, I think you have to look at it through a historical lens. And I mean, look back at polio or whatever example you want to use. Mm-hmm. We have gotten through these things mm-hmm. thanks to modern medicine. And, and I think this will be another scenario optimistically. That's my take. Well, we timestamped a little while ago. Uh, this podcast is not over, but it is 9.42 p.m. and dinner has arrived. Yep. So We have a big ride tomorrow. We got a, we got a big ride tomorrow. We're, We're going to get Ted some food. way above tree line. Oh, gosh. It's going to be brutal. Um, yeah, we're going to carbo load on some food and then I got some really good bullet point follow-ups. Sweet. Hey, hey, Ted here. Quick side note, if this were a Broadway play, this particular section would be called intermission. But this is King of the Ride podcast. So this is merely a 9.30 p.m. dinner break where Pace and I put down our mics. Laura and Nicole just got back after generously picking up our late evening din-din. Okay, now back to the show. Bada boom, bada bing, bouncing all over the place. What is your highlight of 2020 in the year that both wasn't and was, uh, athletically speaking? Ooh, you knew what I was about to answer and you I didn't mean to thwart it that way. No, that's fine. Let's go back. What is the highlight of your 2020? Meeting Nicole Baker. Hands down. Athletically. My heart just melted. (laughs) Well, to be Payson, I also think your girlfriend's pretty cool. <laughs> to be to be fair, Nicole and I didn't meet this year. We've run into each other a handful of times, but we started dating yep. this year. Well, she has nice floors, nice cabinets, and a pretty cool house here. <laughs> um so that was a that was a tangent. Uh ladies and gentlemen, if you have not listened to the Payson McKelvin Adventure Stash podcast episodes one or two or presumably a couple more episodes coming out with Nicole Baker. I highly recommend it because she is a one of the most interesting people whom I've ever listened to a podcast and better yet, better person and a wonderful host, which is why we are sitting on her couch. Yeah. Athletically. Athletically. There we go. Um, the highlight of the year athletically? Yes. Oh boy. Oh, that's actually, yeah, that's an interesting question because it's both the year that was and wasn't and you sort of have yeah. things on both ends. Good work. How many me. answers can I give? Four. Oh, that is the number I needed. Um, okay, for one, this is, I, I almost hesitate to even say this because it doesn't, it doesn't in a way matter, but um as many listeners will know, you uh, as a, as a racer, you sort of benchmark your progress based on um, maybe your local climbs or different different metrics like real world metrics, and then also you have you know power meters, all these different things, and um, these are all things I keep track of too. And this spring was pretty exciting for me because I sort of had a breakthrough in regards to fitness. I, I achieved a level that I hadn't seen before. Um, and so that was a highlight. Even though it didn't necessarily get a chance to to shine, um, I felt like the the years of work that I've put in and some adjustments we've made to training over the last few years really paid off. <clears throat> and that was exciting. And I hope 
I'm optimistic, as you say, that in 2021, we'll be able, I'll get to experience that again. Um, so that was a highlight. That's sort of a, a, a highlight between just my power meter and me. <laughs> no one else knows or cares. Um, more tangible examples would be, um, I've gotten the chance to do some pretty cool long uh, rides this year that typically would be a little too um, a little too big of efforts to do in the middle of a race season. Hmm. Um, so a couple of examples, I jumped on the Everesting bandwagon uh, because of uh, the peer pressure of our mutual friend, Rebecca Rush. Mm-hmm. Um, she's always browbeating me about the races I do are too short and too easy. So mm-hmm. I couldn't turn her down on her Everesting request. Um, that was a lot of fun. Um, I got the chance to film with this production company called Matchstick Productions, which is Sick. very uh, well-known in the ski world. They're yeah. the most well or the most highly decorated action sports production company in history. Um, and out of the blue, I got an email from them this spring asking if I would be a part of their new mountain bike feature length film. And I thought it was a joke at first, (laughs) um, but it was legit. And so I went to Crested Butte and did this really insane hundred mile single track loop in Crested Butte, um, which was an incredible highlight and just working with them in general was, was really cool. Uh, cause I've done a lot of media stuff across the spectrum at this point, whether it's, you know, a three hour photo shoot or, or bigger production stuff, but this was so next level, um, that it was, it was a really cool experience. They have just fun little anecdote. They have one camera that costs $500,000. What? One camera. Lira or dollars? Dollars. Wow. Yeah. That was wild. Uh, another highlight. This is number four. Really? Make it count. I thought it was three. You had done three others, and this is four. Okay. You did personal Every- success. You uh, did that's something true, that's else. True. Yeah, you, you did yeah. Crested Butte. That number one was so lame, though. Literally, highlight was my power meter told me good things. That's it's like the most boring. No, that's a it's a magnificent feather in your cap. That's a personal achievement. The sport is. It's such a public sport, so it's nice to be like, ah, oh, this one's for me. Yeah, I guess that's High true. High five, fist pump. That's true. I did it. The funny thing, though, is literally it doesn't matter until you prove it on a race course, though. Racing vacuums. Yeah. yeah. You're right. Anyway, okay. Uh, fourth would be... I did do a race after Mid-South. Mid-South wasn't one of your highlights? Oh, Mid-South, I forgot about that. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, <laughs> that's fair. You like won the one big race of the year. No, yeah, yeah that's, that's true. But it, you know what's funny is that wasn't, that was almost, in a way, that was almost more of a, like a personal success also in, in a weird way. Um, it, was, it was nice to win, but obviously, but it was more, um, it was so fun to to problem solve during that race because it was so much carnage yeah. that about two-thirds of the way through, I realized the person that was going to win was the one that uh, kind of made the fewest mistakes and like made the most sense of the chaos. Mm-hmm. And almost to an extent, like the legs didn't matter as much mm-hmm. as it typically would. 
And I really enjoyed that problem solving on the fly. And there was so much going on and you were, there was so much input in regards to making sure the bike stayed in one piece and keeping track of the people trying to chase you down and, you know, navigating this chest deep water crossing, all, all those things that you were just forced into such a zone state um, that I haven't had many peak experiences like that just in regards to supreme focus. Mm-hmm. Like forget the race result, just in the moment. That was one of the coolest bike experiences I've had because it was, it was one of the few times where it was like um, the race and survival just became synonymous almost, mm-hmm. which is unusual in bike racing, I think. Bike racing is always hard, but this was super next level. Do you remember in 2019 at the race formerly known as Land Run? Yeah. Payson, first place. I was somewhere behind him. That was him. another good year of that race. So, so Land Run Mid-South is notorious for horrific uh, conditions, much like 2020. And somewhere over the course of the weekend that was Land Run 2019, you said to me, I didn't book my ticket to mid to Stillwater until I saw that the weather was going to be clear. <laughs> That's so true. I forgot about that. And then That's you hilarious. go to 2020 where it's guaranteed to be yeah. miserable. Yeah. So how do you how do you how do reckon I that? that? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. I've never thought about that. Uh, yeah, boy, in hindsight I was such a snob about that 2019 race like oh so i'm only i'm only gonna show up if the weather's good um what kind of i was kind of surprised i'm like yeah i booked my ticket like two months ago (laughs) oklahoma why not yeah um i think part of that was just i wasn't sure about the gravel scene yet and so probably part of me was looking for an excuse to to be resistant still in a way um but I mean, my team manager, team manager John, will tell you that you know, in the couple of days before that 2019 Mid South slash Land Run, I was really not sure about the gravel scene. Um, and then, somewhat ironically, after I won, I was like, "Oh, I really like yeah, gravel." I like this thing. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, I mean, the as we've talked about already on on this episode, the, just the vibe of of gravel is really, really key to its success. Um, and I think part of that is because it is not paved, uh, you have very, very, you can have incredibly varied experiences on the same course year Mm -hmm. to year. And so, uh, I, I was intrigued by that. There was something that was, uh, really intriguing about the idea of doing it in 2019 and having this crazy fast race that, um, was, Almost, I mean, the, the average speed, I think, was 20 miles an hour that year. Yeah, we probably had 20 feet of mud. Right. And then the next year was the was the polar opposite. And so yeah. there was a, a level of curiosity, I guess, to just you know, right on. see. Very good answer. Um, you enjoy media. <laughs> you enjoy... Uh, and I think, I mean, I think this in, in broad swaths, like from creating your own podcast to, I know you, you know, you're a diehard basketball fan. You are friends with Reggie Miller. What are your, what are your favorite media outlets? Is it TNT? Is it a <laughs> podcast? Is it like 
free time. You have two hours any time of the day. What are you reaching for? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a funny question that probably will surprise people a little bit. But um, I started pulling up cycling news on my computer again for the first time in many mo- months simply because my friend Sepp is doing really well mm-hmm. in road racing. Before that, I would I would check cycling news, Vela news, cycling tips, whatever it is, once every two weeks, three weeks, and I would check ESPN <laughs> every day, mm-hmm. every day. Um, on my Instagram feed, it's probably fifty percent basketball and twenty five percent bikes at this point. Um, What's your other twenty five percent? Uh, just random stuff like mixed bag. Oh, we played this last time and Yuri was there. <laughs> Favorite Instagram handle right now. I'm highly recommending the qualified captain. Oh, it's like Jerry of the day for boats. And it's, <laughs> it's so good. The qualified captain. Oh, I got to check incredible. it out. Incredible. Uh, what oh, was yours? I think yours might've been Red Bull last time. I think it was Colin Strickland, because he was making oh, that yeah, ridiculous yeah. brass shower drain. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, the yeah. most Colin thing ever. Right? He spent like three days making this shower drain. Yeah, it's like what? What is Colin doing? I haven't I haven't heard him in regards to bike riding for a few months. Well, he's probably like, I don't know, making a shower drain. So or impressive. I mean, like painting a hubcap. Everybody else would be like, Colin, ever heard of Amazon? He's like, yeah, it's in <laughs> it South <sucks>. America. <laughs> Okay. Uh, Wait, what was your... I feel like you had a question. Oh, favorite Instagram. Yeah, yeah, Um, Right now, House of Highlights, since the NBA... That's entirely NBA. That's entirely basketball. Uh, It's like 90% basketball. Right on. Yeah. Okay. Typically, I ask three final questions. (laughs) However, I'm mixing it up because I don't want to ask those questions. Now we have a new series of quick fire questions. Uh. Payson, you have a logo. You have a podcast that alludes to it. You have, I believe, an LLC. Yeah, it's true. All of which have mustache involved. Will you always have a mustache? I think so. Sometimes the mustache might be disguised within a beard. Nice. Maybe. Uh Uh-huh. But that, I don't even see that happening on the near horizon. Okay. Um, there's a long... The Adventure Beard Podcast. <laughs> For some reason, that sounds way dirtier. Uh-huh. and just like, oof, that'd be a toughie. Um, but there's a, there's a long-standing tradition of facial hair amongst men in my family. Cool. Uh, I have never seen my dad without a beard. My mm-hmm. mom has never seen my dad without a beard. Nice. So uh, I have some optimism about holding strong on that one. Yeah, I saw a picture of you without a mustache once. Yeah. And both Laura and I commented on it. We're like, I had no idea that was Payson. (laughs) Perfect. Please finish this sentence. When I grow up, I want to be. With the qualifier, you can throw the word like on the end of that phrase. I want to be like. Yeah. Oh man, that's hard. We only ask the hardest questions at King of the Ride. Uh, I want to be, I want to be, I want to be like Mike. This is funny because I, I know a 
a decent amount about him, but I'm sure there are things I, I, I don't know about him that might make this a funny answer. But um, I don't know why, but I just look up to Travis Brown like crazy. I mean, there are so many incredible role models in this town and athletically, but also people who have had incredible careers and then retired and gone on to do incredible things within the community or bigger that aren't directly related to cycling. Mm-hmm. Um, but for whatever reason, I mean, yeah, T Brown, Travis Brown is is someone that just popped into mind uh, who just seems to have found incredible balance, Was had an incredibly successful career, but has found this really awesome balance of staying involved within cycling, but also being very, very involved within his community and, and always prioritizing uh, making those around him better or, or more empowered and just being really socially minded. So he's always someone that I've looked up to very, very much. Uh, I feel like that's a very specific answer, though. Um, that was a perfect answer. Yeah. Don't okay. qualify it. I dig right. it. Travis was awesome. Yeah. Uh, my real life superpower is <laughs> again, fill in the blank. Um, again, my tendency is to answer this seriously, which is embarrassing. I feel like I should be answering these ironically. Hit me. Real life superpower would probably be being able to relate to and communicate with almost anyone from any walk of life, I would say. Nice. That's amazing because I've heard on more than one occasion, I wish I could communicate with animals. Which is kind of the same thing, but yours is with people, which is actually applicable. Instead of Wait, being like, okay, so people have answered, I want to communicate. Well, no, I've never, oh, asked, these, I've never asked these questions before. Oh, right. But I've heard new. people say that, like, oh, gosh, That's I wish the, I could these communicate. These are so hard is typically I would have a little bit of reference point because I would have heard you ask these. I know. These are, this is serious stuff here. Yeah. Breaking news. Uh, that is That was a very good answer. Uh, this goes full circle, man. That's Waldorf. It is Waldorf, yeah, for sure. And honestly, Colin is has some of that in him too, I've noticed. Um, and I would absolutely attribute that to Waldorf. Favorite product that we've not talked about today that is not a sponsor? What do you endorse? What do you love? What are you using? What are you completely digging? Oi. Does anything come to mind, Nicole? What's something that I use all the time? I use that pretty typically. She hates that I don't ride with my inReach all the time. She loves to, Bring if flares. I'm out on a long five to six hour road ride, yeah. she loves to be at work and be able to pull up where I am. She's like, oh, he's in Aztec, New Mexico. Oh. That means you guys live in the sticks because we can play the game, but with uh, Find My Friends. <laughs> Yeah, can't do that here. Not so much here. Um, that's a tough one. It could one. be non-endemic. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's what I'm thinking. But so wait, what was the thing that I? It, the question was something that I love. Yeah, your favorite product that does not yeah fit in the category of a sponsor. Oh yeah, of course, shoes. Shoes. But I mean, that's not that's. 
Oh, change. Yeah, Chris Cosentino edition vans. Oh, those are glorious. Coxcomb. Yeah, those absolutely. Are yeah. But I, I the mean, only pair, no, the first pair of vans I ever got was re, was a Chris Cosentino. How cool is it that he is sponsored by vans? Yeah. That is bad. They're in, that's exactly it. Like, if you could be sponsored by somebody, what would it be? It'd be like bands, like Nike, the World Bank, you know, <laughs> Nike, <laughs> the UN. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, it'd probably be, I don't know what it is. I just have this weird, like, fashion interest. It makes no sense. I live in Durango, Colorado. Like, people literally wear, Socks and chacos to the nicest restaurant. Yeah. And everyone thinks it's fine. It, yeah. it is fine. But that's just not my my vibe. And there's a... We're going to set the scene as I interrupt you. You have a, a fashionable pair of camo sweatpants <laughs> clam diggers on right now. That I could never pull off, but I've been looking at them all day thinking, <laughs> I wish I had the fashion sense to be able to pull that off. I'm wearing a tie-dye t-shirt, so what's the name of the place we went tonight? Steamworks. Steamworks. Their bar isn't open, though. Oh, just uh, dine-in only. Clearly their taco stand is not open either. <sighs> well, goodness, where has time gone? My friends, my friend, I thank you for listening. Camo, I thank you for talking. Camo pant friend. Camo panted friend. I'm looking forward to tomorrow. We got a big bike ride in store, you've already showed me uh, the when quick hour-long route. We we took a, a largely... We did the uh, backwards Iron Horse course today. Pretty much, yeah. And then Minus the two big passes, but yeah. Well, we went down a half of a pass. <laughs> yeah, true. That was kind of like Iron Horse. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, I'm excited for tomorrow. <laughs> I thank you both very much for playing host. And I'm very excited to listen to your podcast tomorrow in person. Very good. Cheerio. Cheerio. That is all from Durango. Next stop, Aspen. Thanks very much to Payson for being on the podcast. Thanks also to John Summerford, as always, for editing this pod. And lastly, I want to thank Whoop for being a sponsor. Now, here's a quick anecdote. I use Whoop. Laura uses Whoop. Payson uses Whoop. Nicole uses Whoop. I've even put a Whoop on Hazel once to see her hummingbird-like heart. That was an entertaining few minutes. And here's another sliver of insight that ultimately is a message directly to you, fair listener. I was an enormous skeptic of the product. I've used a handful of other, let's call them wearable technology, and was largely unimpressed. Whoop then reached out and literally said, Ted, just try it. So with all the cynicism in the world, I tried it, and now I am dyed in the wool whoop. I swear by the data. I use it, especially in parenthood, to optimize the way I recover, train, sleep, and quite frankly, how I live. So are you a skeptic? Here is the reward for listening this deep into the podcast. Let me save you the initial $30 buy-in. All you have to do is follow the link in the show notes and you will get a whoop for free. That offer is impossible to beat. Just head to that link, get yourself a whoop and see how you like it. That is all from Van Central. Ladies and gentlemen, over and out.